just before she gave the blow. She stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. Welcome back. Thanks for joining Megan, Annika, and myself for part three of our discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We begin where we left off, talking about the shifting origins of the White Witch and whether treachery is the essence of all sin. We'll also talk about Aslan and Christ as tricksters, the way in which this book is both a Christmas and Easter book, and the contrasting management styles of Aslan and Jadis. We'll give you your first fanfiction assignment, and discuss how C.S. Lewis may have inadvertently ruined our childhoods. If you enjoy this, and think other Inklings fans might as well, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. We realize it still has rough patches, but that is the best way to make this podcast available to other people who have traveled to these other worlds. So without further ado, it's... The Inklings Variety Hour. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Okay, so the, the the queen has a talk with Aslan, and um, they talk about the deep magic from the dawn of time, right? That that all traitors belong to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that little aside about again, this is the this is the old backstory of Jadis, the White Queen, right? That she was um, the emperor's executioner, right? Which is which is interesting, I and mean, she certainly wasn't that in uh, the magician's nephew, as far as as far as I know, but, um, but, um, yeah, this, this model of salvation of, um, well, you know, basically she's got a legal right to sinners or to traitors. Um, and then Aslan offers him, offers himself in place of Edmund. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and she sort of, says ha 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 i've i fooled you aslan Mm. because Mm -hmm. you know really um i'm you know i'm going to take everything anyway and i'm also going to kill edmund anyway Mm. um and and you've you know willingly given yourself up to me um yeah what what are your thoughts on that um well i i just it occurred to me I'm, i'm throwing this out there but treachery being like the base sin because of course this, this isn't about sin just like general it's about this these are for traitors right and edmund is a traitor 
and the problem with his character being that he he doesn't hold true and almost like treachery it seems a reframing of sin as um a lack of integrity and a lack of inability to to be a whole true person whose yes is yes and no is no and who isn't a spy or isn't somehow false like playing false to your friends and how often in the rest of lewis's work um like i i think it's in screw tape when he talks about um like if you can get the the patient the the hero if the demons working on him can get him to listen to have these two different sets of friends and listen to one group but think of like oh the others would laugh at them so much and then listen to the other group and think like like if he could if you can get them to um to play false with your friends um like that then you have him like there there's something about treachery and betrayal that goes deep for lewis and and seems to him to be a matter of like this is what maybe I'm overreading this entirely and it was just easier to say like oh traitors but for children because that's something you can point at and feels deeply unfair and wrong and there's there are clear um clear victims um whereas some other sins it might be harder to to get to that point but yeah what do you what do you think with that well I think I mean at its base just thinking out loud treachery is kind of the opposite of love mm. like the high like the highest virtue just by the way dante put it at the bottom of of hell that's where the, that's where the traitors are you know they're literally in satan's mouth being judah or, or the the three worst ones judas brutus and cassius um and so i think because because love is love is um you know I mean, First Corinthians 13, love's not proud, self-seeking, does no wrong, you know, that, you know, covers over a multitude of sins, um, whereas treachery is very, very self-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about you looking out for number one, which is the complete opposite of what, what capital L love should be. Um, so I, th- I think, I think there's definitely, I don't think you're reading too much into that at all. I think there's, it's, Maybe it's on to an extent it is shorthand for children. Like, oh, well, they understand that, you know, I shouldn't betray my friends because that's mean and wrong. But I think there is still other layer of um, there's a reason why, you know, treachery was such a horrible, horrible thing to most of the world for a really long time. <laughs> um, I mean, even today, but, um, you know, uh, Apparently, I don't know if there are worse, worse sins, you know, today, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think there totally is something to that, um, treachery just being, being the complete opposite of love. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree. That's, that's where, you know, that's, that's the ring in which Satan is punished, right? No, I mean, the, the treachery towards benefactors, right? Treachery, what's, what's a greater tre- treachery toward a benefactor than, um, treachery toward God, right? Um, toward uh, the person who made you and who gave you your self to serve him. And you've, uh, you know, and in, in some ways, I think Dante might say that is the essence of sin. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, 
uh, Lewis is definitely picking up on that. Um, but uh, yeah, um, that and and you know they in in Dante they give the three greatest traitors Brutus, Cassius, Shakespeare notwithstanding, and Judas right to to the devil right um, to chew. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a similar thing. But uh, but yeah, we've got the uh, the the stone table, which is used to you know sacrifice traitors who have been you know given to the to the white witch. Um, and then um, Megan, you had a I thought I thought a really um, interesting insight about uh, the white queen's use of uh, of the term oh, fool oh, in yes. this chapter. Yes. Well, she says it twice. Well, she says it once at the end of the Triumph of the Witch, and then she says it, she calls him the great, great fool again at the beginning of chapter 15, right before they run off to go conquer Nern. Um, and, and again, I never would have picked up on this as a child. <laughs> um, that the it and and I may be reading too much into it, but um, the use of the word fool to me at least evokes that. I mean, the archetype of the fool. Um, like from Jungian psychology or from um, the tarot, because essentially Lewis is leaning, I think, in Narnia more towards um, like a Christus Victor model of uh, atonement. And so in, in that model, um, I guess sometimes it's called the ransom theory of atonement, but uh, Christ essentially gives himself as a ransom or to, to buy back <laughs> uh, humanity from Satan in a sense and so but then it turns out oh he kind of flips it all on its head he resurrects so he's actually not dead so nothing was lost and everything was gained in that point and so that kind of makes him sort of a trickster figure in that sense um which i know some people <laughs> might be uncomfortable with that language but um christ is a trickster figure but especially when you consider it's interesting to consider that um satan slash lucifer however you want to refer to him is often referred to as a, like the ultimate trickster figure mm -hmm. um and to have Christ kind of positioned as uh, a superior trickster figure, even to the ultimate trickster figure, um, it's something interesting to contemplate because essentially uh, Christ played Satan's game and was better at it. <laughs> um, and so I, I don't know if that was Lewis's intent, if he went that deep with that use, but it just, it, it stuck out to me um, in this reading. So um Something, something to contemplate anyway. Yeah, I really like that idea of Aslan as uh, the, the, what you're saying, the double meaning of, of fool. Um, and that um, not only, you know, not only does he um, deceive the deceiver, right? Um, as, as in the um, sort of medieval model of redemption, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he, um, but he also throughout, like, like, we were kind of seeing is so joyful and so kind of manic. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and yeah, like, and, like immediately after he gets resurrected, there's, I mean, there's paragraphs of them just romping, which is interesting to me. Like I, that's not, I don't know why I don't think that necessarily stuck out to me before, but this time it definitely did. Cause it, there was a period of just them just like, well, let's play for a bit. Oh, and, oh, and then, we need to fly off and do things now, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. But let's take time to play first and be joyful and jovial. Again, going back to that Jupiter theme, um, it's kind of all throughout the book. But 
yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, and even when he, it's funny. Cause like, like you said, he gets to the castle and starts breathing on the statues and there's still like that element of, it's all just kind of play to him. Um, <laughs> you know, which is, which is so interesting. And then I, it makes me think of, um, it makes me think of that. Um, and I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but there's, <laughs> there's a chapter to the quote where he essentially says something to the effect of, um, uh, the one aspect of Christ that's missing from the gospels is his mirth. Um, mm. There's not a lot of it in there. Um, and of course he speculates about why, you know, that might be. Um, and I think Lewis maybe might be either consciously or subconsciously picking up on that a little bit and saying, Hey, yes, Christ is a, a joyful figure. Um, you know, and, and, and so he's, he's a creative and joyful figure and he likes to play. <laughs> um, and so I think that's just something to re- good to remember, but um, yeah really that's really neat to me yeah i love that and i love the you know how joyless the like like we've kind of been talking about the how joyless the the white witch is right and and how she's upset when she sees a bunch of animals eating christmas dinner in the having forest fun. but yeah. she does have so at the very end of chapter 13 she turns away with a look of fierce joy on her face mm. right before she says but how do i know this promise will be kept like like she thinks her joy is, is being realized and it's i i started um because i i think of fierce joy a lot um but i think of like joy like swords or um dancing for revenge uh but for the witch to have fierce joy uh sort of took me aback a little bit although that that isn't like the actual it's not true joy but she is feeling something i wonder if like his use of fierce there isn't i mean intentional because it's yeah you know it's it's kind of gives the impression of like yes this is joy but not this is like like a corrupted joy almost maybe like not the not the correct sort of joy you should be right. having. Yeah. It's a desire fulfilled. Yeah. Or or a dream realized, but not yeah. Yeah, I mean you you can also you can have a look of that on your face, um, even if what your face is masking is a kind of emptiness and, and hunger right oh, and, and yeah. sort of, uh, no chris in narnia the look on your face is who you are <laughs> i think we're over this that's right that's right so <laughs> two ways to get joy <laughs> but you know, one might work out for you the other maybe not as much definitely won't um but uh yeah um so uh, i i love i love aslan i love that the women are with him and it's the the two little girls um but the oh children children why are you following me um i'll be glad of company you may come um and when he says to them the like it broke my heart as like a seven-year-old and it still crushes me i am sad and lonely and i i think the the beauty of this this passion scene um and and lewis really pulls it out but he's braver and more beautiful and more patient uh when he's mocked and muzzled and to see the omnipotent made vulnerable by his love uh it 
I just think it's really, it's like three pages, if even that. Um, but it's so powerful. And I, I think it, it gets children to see a little more and all of us to see a little more the beauty of Jesus. Because even the, when I go through the passion readings, um, you get numb or you get used to and like, yeah. Um, but Susan's sobbing about how they're cowards. And uh, I love that we get to go with the girls and see, see what the witch does to Aslan and see her, her meanness and her spite and cruelty as well as her, um, yeah, her uh, greed and lust for blood. Yeah. The, the banality of evil as well as its sort of demonic side. Yeah, um, in in some ways, like I, I think I think the banality of evil is absolutely a, a, a um, great phrase to use here, um, and I find it really interesting and sort of fun. And this is one way in which I think the magician's nephew, being the first book, could be made to work because Jadis is so much more of a round character in the magician's nephew than she is here. Mm. Um, and you could sort of retcon it so that the reason she's so much flatter as the white witch than she is as, um, you know, as, as queen of Charn um, is that just over time that evil saps all of the blood out of her, right. And, and makes her this sort of uh, caricature so that she's certainly not very interesting um, as, as a character by the time you get to the, the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. Yeah, I think I also love um, the the really simple image of grief. And again, he goes into the avuncular narrative mode. But I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. Um, and that's what, two sentences? Yeah, two because he uses a semicolon and some dashes. But it's such a quick, evocative, oh, that's what that is. That, and it lets children name and understand and grown-ups name and understand things too. Um, he's just so good. Yeah. What I, what I love about that. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I'm actually kind of curious now. Uh, cause what, this is 1950, right? When this was published. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to figure out when, when was a grief observed? This was, that was after he wrote this after that wrote, wrote a grief observed after Lana, which is that right? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. 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 And it's just interesting that like, cause that's, that's one of my favorite Lewis works um, just because he's so vulnerable and human in that book. Um, but I mean, it, this, this is almost like a, like those two sentences are almost like a spark notes version of <laughs> part of a grief observed anyway. Um, he just captures that sense of grief really well right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he, he lost his mom. He was 
bullied in school. I mean, he he definitely he was Professor um, Diggory. He was Diggory, right? Like yeah. going back to the magician's nephew, like that was him trying to write the story as if, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Saved her. And he does it so well here because he says, you know, when he's addressing people, he's like, if you have been right. And what you mm-hmm. expect because he's inserting himself is like trying to cheer them up before they really should be right. Like, like if you have been, you know, just know that other people have been there too, or something, mm. you know, something kind of cliched like that was, was what I was almost expecting. But, but instead he's just like, you know, if, if, if you've been through this, you know what usually happens next. Right. Um, so, so it's like him saying, you're not alone, you know, other people have too, but without saying that, but rather with, with just saying like, yes. And, and, you know, it's just as you know, this, you know, this thing usually happens next. Um, and, and then that, um, that just kind of beautifully prepares the way for the ultimate consolation, right. Which is, which is the resurrection, um, and the resurrection of, of Aslan, which is kind of the answer to, all of the sorrows of the world, right? Or, you know, resurrection of Christ, the answer to all the sorrows of the world, right? Um, um, but, um, yeah. Um, should we talk about the statues? Yeah. What happened yes. about the statues? Um, <laughs> um, I actually really liked, um, I, I think it was your point, Chris, uh, talking about, um, that that as Aslan breathes on these like statues, most of them are a lot of them are figures from like pagan mm. mythology, and it's almost like it's kind of that whole continues that whole thread of uh, essentially baptizing paganism to where um, you you know rather than just erasing them entirely or you know just kind of making them boring, they actually Aslan actually makes them more alive um, as he redeems them, brings them back to life. Um, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's really it's really um, cool how this works on two levels, right? Because you have you have after Aslan's resurrection, the resurrection of all of these figures that could be statues on top of graves, right? And they're and they're becoming real beings again, oh. right? Um, and it's at the like same- Doctor Who. Sorry. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Um, I don't know if I. Yeah, like um, the weeping yeah, angels. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Angels, but they're yeah. creepy. Um, well, yeah, they're creepy. <laughs> it becomes less creepy as the series goes on. Honestly. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, they can. They, it, it can symbolize the resurrection of the dead, right? Um, and 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 in fact, you know, these creatures are, for all intents and purposes, dead. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, uh, having been turned to stone kills you. Um, and, and then you don't have, still have like a little heart beating inside, you know, a, a statue. Um, and the same time, um, there's, you know, you also get statues when you have false gods, right. And when you, when you, when mm-hmm. you have idols, um, and he's, and he's breathing on these pagan gods and allowing them to become, subordinate um to 
the true creator of human beings and of human beings' minds that created them, right? And so that all that is good about them is redeemed and alive again. Um, and I think that's part of why this is such a good Christmas and Easter book is that the common charge against Christmas and Easter is this is a way that Christians took our cool pagan festivals and made them lame. Um, and the Saturnalia bad, forever. Yeah. And the big bad <laughs> church, you know, basically tricked the stupid people into, mm-hmm. you know, continuing to celebrate their pagan festivals. They just gave it a Christian, Christian gloss and what medievals would say and what Lewis I imagine would say is, is, well, these things find their culmination and their fulfillment. Um, all that is good finds its culmination fulfillment in the presence of the good, right. In the presence of, um, of, of God, um, and of Christ. And in, if you're in Narnia in the presence of Aslan, right. Um, uh, that, um, that, that, that breathing is a way of taking something that humans created, using their faculty of subcreation, right. And, and hallowing it and making it real and making it, um, you know, and making it, uh, um, a creature in its own, in its own right. Um, which is, uh, which is, which is neat. And, and, and yeah. the resurrection of the dead. Well, and I love that it's, it's, it's taking a, a creation and making it real. It, it's, um, is it uh, Moses? What a Michelangelo sculpt, and then the knee is banged up because apparently the story is that he, after he finished it, he hit the knee and yelled at it to live. Do you know that story? No, no. I don't. No. Uh, they, they tell it at the Uffizi Museum. Uh, but yeah, that's the, the tale. That that's cool. You, I mean, it's Pygmalion too, right? I mean, it's, mm. it's, uh, except again, stripped of sex. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's the, the statue becoming real again and the thing that you only hoped for happening, um, mm. an extension of this sort of eucatastrophe of Aslan rising mm. again. Um, but, um, walking into the story you wrote. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. And it's also, it's also, you know, the harrowing of hell, right? And that's, that's the most obvious symbolic use of this going to the witch's house, going to hell and bringing the righteous dead back and letting the wall crumble as it does in Dante. Um, um, except Jesus didn't have giant rumble buffin to help him. Uh, <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Could be. In my imagination, he did. <laughs> Anything else on any of those fronts? Because we can we can head on in for the for the home plate with the uh, hunting of the white stag. Yes. Um, uh, th- there's a battle. Some stuff happens. The queen gets killed you know what's what's uh, funny about that is like i'm kind of with you i was in rereading and i i didn't realize oh the battle was over in like two paragraphs or something yeah Yeah. and and i think you had you we were talking earlier and you had asked about like i can't remember how they stretched this out for the movie (laughs) and there was just a whole lot there was a whole lot of battle 
at that point, you know, that they just filmed, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, in reading it, I thought, oh, none of that actually happens. Like, it's very, it's just over. You're like, oh, by the way, um, Edmund broke the wand. We don't see that happen. You just get told that he did it, you know. And so it's almost like Lewis is like, all right, um, yeah, we're, we're done. I'm just going to wrap this up now, you know. Um, but I don't know. Maybe there's a different reason for that. <laughs> but it is, it is over very quickly. His, I mean, for being a male writer who spent all of his time with male writers, um, right? his, his um, sympathy, I think, for his female characters is so strong. Um, even thinking about battles like, you know, Till We Have Faces, what, what, yeah. you, what you're saying yeah. reminded me of, of Till We Have Faces and the, and the way that he describes battles there, which is just like, it's over very quick. Um, but... Um, um, yeah, there, there are a couple of places where I could see people like pointing out, well, this is Lewis being sexist again, blah, blah, blah. You know, battles get ugly when women are involved or, you know, the, the girls help the, help Mrs. Beaver and, you know, Edmund and Peter go out and catch fish. But like, Lewis doesn't know anything about catching fish. You know, he has, <laughs> he says, he's you know, helping Mrs. Beaver. His hand in it, but you have <laughs> a few paragraphs about exactly how the food is made. Right. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's this to the nth power with, with these chapters where the real battle is what the girls get to, mm-hmm. you know, be a part of and, and watch You're playing with a thunderstorm and a kitten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and then the, you know, the battle with swords and stuff like that, that the boys get to do, you know, big deal. Um, yeah. some people get lucky, some people don't. And, and then Aslan comes and takes the witch down. I, I wonder too, if that's also something about the privileging of joy in this book and like it, it would seem silly if you were to like count up the, the page length, dem- like given over just to Aslan having fun and like the, and also that the battle, this is what struck me as a kid, um, that the battle is over. Like as soon as Aslan shows up, it's done. Like there, there is no excitement because there is no holding your breath. He just like jumps on her and she's gone. And I, I think there's truth to that. Like, yeah, Jesus shows up. That's it. Um, I remember being shocked by Aslan's gentleness and that Lucy is cross to him when she's treating Edmund, um, when she's using her gifts in the hunting of the white stag. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's, he tells her like, it's her first instruction to go and play um, Florence Nightingale, right on the battlefield going out to, to treat the wounded soldiers. And she finds Edmund and she's she's pouring just a couple drops and then she's waiting to see if it'll work because he's about to die. And Aslan tells her there are other people she has to go tend to. And she's cross. She says, yes, I know, said Lucy, Lucy crossly. Wait a minute. She says, wait a minute to Aslan. And that kills me. Um, and it's so sweet and little kid-like. Like, I'm I'm doing my thing and I'm focused and you're like you're interrupting me. And then he speaks to her in a grave voice. Others also are at the point of death. Must more people die for Edmund? And she apologizes and then goes for half an hour and uh, attending. And it's part of her, her restoration work along with Aslan, which I always thought was like the coolest job. 
Like I, I thought the horn sounds cool, but I bet the cordial, like having that ability to, to bring people back from the edge of death and heal all their wounds, that sounded like the coolest gift of all the gifts. Like she's going around with Aslan renewing all things, basically. I mean, it's, it's a picture of partnership, really. Like mm -hmm. we're, as Christians, we're called to partner with Christ um, to help usher in his kingdom, essentially. And so I think that's another, yet another just great image um, for people to hold on to as well. So. Yeah. And maybe if you're given a cordial that can heal anything, don't waste it on your seasick cousin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get to that later. Uh, so they have a really great long reign, um, you know, probably all of about 10 years. Um, unless like people just live a lot longer in Narnia, um, and, or age a lot slower or something like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're crowned at Care Paravel. Aslan walks out the door, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. um, and we've got, uh, who, who says, somebody says something like, uh, um, oh yeah, sometimes Aslan, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be coming. Oh, it's, uh, it's Mr. Beaver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'll be coming and going. He'll be coming and going. One, one day you'll see him and another you won't. Yeah. He doesn't like being tied down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, which is interesting. Like, like one thing um, that one way in which he really contrasts with the witch um, is, is that the witch kind of tried to do everything herself. Uh, I mean, she had slaves with her, right. To like do the menial aspect of that but she was driving around in the sleigh patrolling you know um whereas aslan is pretty comfortable with delegation um it, it seems like mm. he's, he's and so are the peasancies yeah as rulers right no yeah yeah can you speak more to that yeah well they they made good laws um and that, so they their time was spent seeking the witch's army and destroying them um, and so their, their job is like basically establishing order and protecting, defending from invasion. Right. Um, but in the end they, they get rid of all the weirdo creatures and ghouls and hags and they make good laws and they kept the peace. Um, and they generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. Um, and so it sounds kind of Shire-like in the sense of the ideal government is the one that just lets you alone. Um, and like, you should be safe enough. Like we, we do acknowledge there should be sheriffs uh, in the Shire, making sure they're patrolling the bounds and keeping bad things out. But we really don't care what price you set your corn at, and we're not going to tell you what age your children should stay in school until like you, we're going to let you, live your lives and we encourage ordinary people. It's the, the Tucker Carlson party of Narnia. Maybe that was too far. I don't know. Boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, we can cut that. It's fine. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's, um, you know, I think, I think one, one thing that's interesting is that he, they do, they keep people from interfering with with other people and and using their you know limited power or, or or lower order of power right to interfere with people living their 
their ordinary lives or, or, or whatever else. Um, um, other than that, we get no sense of raising taxes or building big projects or right. yeah, there are some state visits mentioned, but they just seem like friendly hangout times and wanting to establish good relationships with other countries. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's a really, uh, I mean, it's a very fairy tale esque with a, an edge of sort of modern satire to it. Um, you know, uh, description of, of a good rain but yeah absolutely they're they're perfectly happy to delegate power slash prevent people from you know abusing that power and then otherwise just leave people alone which is uh which is different and in, in a lot of ways from um a, a slightly more anarchic version of um of of the use of power where there's no king and queen right mm. there's still a king and queen because you need someone to look up to right but the way that they practically implement their power is to trust you to you know use your own power in a good way and know what's best for you um even, even as like you're not being overly arrogant, right? You're not, you're not saying, Oh, well, I'm the most important thing in my, in my world. Like you still have this sense of reverence toward the King as almost kind of a figurehead, right? Um, like kind of similar to the monarchs and, you know, in Lewis's day, I, I, I guess. Um, but, uh, also like this is comment, just his one sentence describing Edmund's, because Edmund was a graver and quieter man than Peter and great in counsel and judgment, which shows that he's come, you know, he's made a 180 at this point. Because he showed poor judgment in the beginning and he's since learned yes. how to exercise good judgment because he's been in Narnia long enough to figure out the rules. <laughs> exactly. And what I like about this ending um, is the way in which it parallels their first coming into Narnia, right. With, with even the different there, I mean, they're, they're speaking like presumably, I guess, Narnians speak, um, not the, not only the Narnians that we've met, but Narnian humans of which there are none at this point. It's high court Narnian. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's the fashion down at Care Paravel. That's the way they speak there where they, where they put on airs. It's not not the way that Tumnus and the Mm -hmm. beavers Beavers. speak, but. uh, Wherefore by my counsel, we shall lightly return to our horses. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I, other, other than like, he is sort of slapping us in the face with the idea that this is romance. And at the beginning of Rome, you know, medieval romance, and at the beginning of medieval romance, you have an adventure and you can choose to take that adventure or mm. not. And usually of course you're going to choose to take the adventure. Otherwise there's no story. Um, and, and, and that's what they do. Right. And so he's having them talk the way that people talk in, in Mallory, right. And even, uh, in, in, in the Mark Dartur, um, and even the, uh, um, quote by Susan after they finally persuade her the way they had to persuade her when they were all kids coming into Narnia to stick with it. Right. They're persuading her. Oh yeah, let's go. Let's go. Um, and she says, if you all have it, so let us go on and take the adventure that shall fall to us. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and that's like w almost word for word straight out of what one of the Knights in Mallory says um, when, you know, when, when people are like, oh, that's, so sure that's a good idea, Sir Balin. And he's like, well, uh, God has ordained this adventure and I'll take the adventure that shall fall to me. Um, and then he ends up dying. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, poor Susan. She doesn't have a really great end either. So. Oh, it's true. It's true. So any final, final thoughts on, on this ending? Um, I, I, as a kid, it set me up like the, the professor saying there are other people who have been to other worlds. Um, keep your eyes open. Um, you'll, you like, you'll kind of recognize them. I don't think, I mean, beyond the professor, <laughs> I don't think they did, um, in, in their, time here on earth or in Narnia but I always wondered like did Lewis yeah what are the other other worlds or is this also to me it seems more um more like uh, a sign of you will find other friends who are into the same weird things that you are the way Lewis found the inklings um the way he found uh was it Arthur his buddy uh-huh arthur greaves yeah yeah um as a kid and yeah um and i never did until like moving to dc and finding you guys but aww. i aw, um i was always trying to get into other worlds and i assumed because c.s lewis told me so in this book that it was really easy um, don't try to get there and it'll happen when you're not looking for it and you will get into other worlds and i did not and that is all I have to say about that. <laughs> you ruined our childhood, C.S. Lewis. I want my money back. <laughs> we sue Harper Collins. Who do we sue? Um, the estate of C.S. What is? Is it Douglas Graham who yeah, has we, all the money? Douglas Gresham. Gresham. Yeah, yeah. Gresham. We'll go, thank we'll you go for that. Let's see if we can squeeze any money out of that guy. Um, no. Um, I'm a I'm JD and Megan's a paralegal. We'll, we'll make it happen. Oh, <laughs> not that kind of paralegal. <laughs> uh, no, I almost wonder if um, the uh, reference to uh, other adventurers going to other worlds is like his kind of, he's, what he has in mind is Ransom from the Space Trilogy. Oh. Like not, not yeah, I was wondering that too. But like, I wonder if like that's in the back of his mind. Like, yeah, like that guy, Ransom, in <laughs> <laughs> <And> Mars. <laughs> the kids won't know about that yet. But <laughs> I mean, you know, I I I just wonder if that was kind of in the back of his head. I'll go on walking holidays and yeah, yeah, stumble across him. He could mm -hmm. construct a you know connected cinematic universe involving uh yeah. you know, there's money to like, be made guys that's right that's right so kirk and ransom hang out and um, <laughs> some good fan fiction that could be written at least um, which by the way i have a challenge for our listeners um i want you to one one thing that had always slipped by me in the um in the what happened about the statues chapter is that apparently in Narnia 
they're not there's not just like a mixing of like dwarves and fawns and things like that but there's a di mixing of different kinds of animals and one of the animals that aslan um, <laughs> liberates is a kangaroo so i'd like to challenge our listeners to write a fan fiction about being that kangaroo in Narnia. <laughs> when you're that kangaroo. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's the only kangaroo in Narnia or if there's, uh, you know, a whole kangaroo culture kind of in Narnia. It's, it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like India and boxing. Like, what, yeah. what is this? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 Very. Make it real exotic and... Throwing that's, a kangaroo. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the, maybe the kangaroo could make friends with some nymphs. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, you, you can kind of see where Yeah, Tolkien's well, the coming. kangaroo would be like the perfect guest at your midsummer romp on the dancing lawn. That is true. With the fawn. There you go. That is true. That is true. Hop it around. Or you could have like fawn style kangaroo people right that are like kangaroo from the waist downward but you know they're good because the bad ones are the ones that have animal heads and human bodies <laughs> the bull man minotaur thing like okay so Aslan's friends there's a half man half bull who has a man's head on a bull's body and then the um, and then the witch's entourage. There's mm -hmm. a guy with the with a you know with a man's body and a bull's head, right? So you got to figure that like when they met up, you know, to fight or whatever else, the two like bull men <laughs> kind of like their eyes kind of met, and they're like, yeah, I might you have got to my kill top you. Half. I, I uh, wow uh, on yeah. that note yeah it's, it's, it's late so let's <laughs> let's uh let's just end with the question of why assuming that somebody listening to this has not read the lion the witch in the wardrobe which is probably a stupid thing to assume um what makes it a good novel why is it worth your time i think we've already kind of touched on it um it's i mean it's it's a great, it's great storytelling. Um, like I said before, uh, it, it's got something for children and adults. Um, you know, it, it merits multiple rereads, obviously, because uh, just rereading it now, picked up on so many different things that I didn't um, reading it as a kid. Um, but it's just, um, it's just such a, like a joyful book. And there are dark elements in it, but there's um, there's so much hope and light to be found at the end um, with that, you know, that catastrophe that I think, I mean, that's really, it's, it's just life-giving is the, the best way I can describe it. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think similarly, if you're a, a Christian, not as devotional literature, but when I go into Narnia, I come out loving Jesus more. Um, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that either. Uh, it's, and it's refreshing. Like it, it, it's the sort of book that it's the right sort of book to read. Um, and 
not because maybe I'll necessarily know what to do if one day in my late 30s I end up finally getting into uh, a magical different world, but because um, I do think there are really true and um, important things Lewis has to say about motivations and interrogating um, our own choices to to believe or to not believe ourselves or others. Um, yeah, I'm very thankful for that. Mm. Yeah. Well, great. Um, what about you? Oh, what about me? Uh, <laughs> gosh, it, it really wasn't. I hate this book. Uh, no, yeah. no. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I like it. Um, I can't really overstate how much Lewis's work has enriched my Christianity, um, especially um, as much as I value the evangelical tradition and as much as I, you know, love so much about it. Uh, there's a broadness in Lewis um, that is very much worth making a, an aspect of your experience of Christianity and of reality as a child. Um, mm. That, um, you know, I remember people, you know, in the little podunk Christian school that I, that I grew up in, um, you know, um, in a town of Culpeper, right, which is which is a tiny little town in Virginia, um, there were there were um, families that wouldn't let their kids in, like, be in the class because a book. I think it was like the Secret Garden. It had the word magic on the back, and that necessarily meant that it must be, you know, it must have to do with, yeah. um, you know, with with evil you know, devil worship or, or something like that. Right. So, so there can be such a, um, uh, a, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the narrowness of the hobbits, right? Like you, you love them and probably only they can save the world. Um, <laughs> but they could also really benefit from contact, contact with, you know, the true King and the dwarves and elves and everything else. Right. Um, and, and I think, um, uh, having this book so deeply address um, that we don't need to be afraid of the pagan and that we don't need to be afraid of magic. Um, that motivation really, really matters when you talk about magic, right? Um, and, and that when it's something um, enchanting you to love the good, um, that that could be a step closer to knowing God more fully um, rather than just uh, hating what is evil and then also seeing probably more things as evil than you probably really need to. Mm. So, um, so I, I think it's so, it's so valuable developmentally and, and, and I'm sure along with the other Narnia books, um, you know, was for me as well, even though I, I, I can't remember reading it as a very young child. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautiful statement of, you know, the redemption of, you know, even the, um, I think there's a, uh, you know, there, there, there are lines in uh, Tolkien's Mythopoeia, right? Um, that even if humans created false gods and sowed the seed of dragons, it was their right, that right 
has not decayed, we make still in the law in which we're made, right? Um, that we are, um, um, and, and, God, and God redeems it, what's more, right? Um, which, uh, which, is, um, which is the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> uh, so that's what I have to say about that. Yay. So, um, yeah. Well, thanks, friends. It's wonderful having the, the variety of inklingness, even as we focus on one inkling book. Yeah, yeah. Megan, do you have your reflection that you oh, I do. wrote with yes. you? Would you mind reading it to kind of like play us out? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yes, I wrote a sort of short meditation to this, um, the quote I mentioned earlier, this image um, that has stuck with me um, and probably will stick with me for a long time. But um, the quote is, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Then I, I wrote, in the recesses of our minds, the whispers lie in wait. Their potent subtlety is familiar, an echo of our ancient adversary. We intimately know the lines and creases in our accuser's face, the sinister creaking in that voice, the naked contempt in those eyes. Discord holds us transfixed, and we cannot hear the melody our Lord sings over us. But our Lord is here, even in our self-dug pits, depression, inadequacy, rage, loneliness, despair. He raises his arm and calms the storm of words we tell ourselves, and also the storm of words we've convinced ourselves other people speak about us. Lifts our chins so our eyes meet his, and he says to us, Peace, I am with you. Go on looking at Aslan, friends. Thanks for joining us for the end of our discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. After talking about this book for three hours, we came to the realization that we have only really scratched the surface. So, if you'd like, give it a reread and send us your thoughts at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com. Again, that's inklingsvarietyhour, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. Next week, we'll take a break but we will post some bonus content for you to enjoy. The following week, we'll get a little less mainstream with our discussion of Charles Williams' novel War in Heaven. Feel free to read along if you'd like. I believe the Kindle edition is fairly inexpensive. We plan to also read one other work by the Inklings before the end of this season, and we'll let you know what that is after the War in Heaven episodes. If you've listened to this all the way to this point... We'd really appreciate a review on iTunes, which will allow other like-minded people to discover this podcast. To those who have already given us a five-star rating, thank you. And whether you have or not, thank you for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Encounter full of joy 
and scheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. You ruined our childhood, C.S. Lewis. <laughs>